With another election in front of us, Pastor Ed Taylor reminds us where real hope is found. There is a sense that with all the world's woes and all the hope of the nation is just to make sure that we get the right person in office. And if we just get the right person in office, oh, the whole world will turn around. Listen, I'm with you as a citizen of our country that I would prefer a person that would reflect the culture and the Judeo-Christian values of our country. But listen, it doesn't matter who's in office. A man will not save the country. Nor a woman, whoever's running. It doesn't matter. It is not political hope that we have. Only King Jesus can turn a life around, turn a country around, and turn a world around. And he's promised to do just that thing. He's promised that. He's coming again. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You We continue to follow Jesus on his road to the cross here on Abounding Grace. Welcome to the program. Pastor Ed Taylor is leading us through the Gospel of John right now, and today we find Christ preparing his disciples for what was ahead of them. In just a few short hours, Jesus would be on the cross and he would be leaving them, but he would not leave them alone, for his Holy Spirit would soon enter the scene. Just as he would help them through life, he's our great helper too. We're in John chapter 16. Take your Bibles, would you, to open them to John's Gospel, chapter 16. As we are in a section of Jesus teaching his disciples, preparing them for up to that point in their life, the worst days of their life are just up ahead. Jesus is going to be crucified just days away from where we are right now. And he knows that, and he's preparing this ragtag group of disciples for a very difficult time in their lives. At this point, we know that they're confused. We know that they're struggling. We know that they're troubled. We know that they are sorrowful. And Jesus is taking the time to prepare them for what's up ahead. They don't really know and recognize, as many of us in the same boat would say, going through a trial. They don't really know, though, that even what is the worst thing to ever happen to them is going to become the best thing, as Jesus Christ is not going to just die and be buried, but three days later, he's going to rise again. And while Jesus is preparing them, he's preparing us. But it wasn't just an emotional thing. We have spent some time looking at the emotional side of this, because I believe oftentimes the emotional side's not addressed at all. But these are real men with a real friend who they left everything and everyone and dedicated themselves to following this man. Now, they didn't just follow him as a friend. They followed him because they believed that he was the savior of the world. They believed that his teaching was true. They saw the miracles. They saw the healings. They heard the teaching. No one ever came teaching like Jesus. The Bible says that even the common people were glad when he was teaching. And they cast their lot in with him, both as savior of the world and also as friend. And we often look at and focus on the savior part 
and many times neglect the fact that this was their friend. They just spent three years with him. And the sorrow and the trouble and the difficulty is real. But I also want to draw out for you and remind you that it wasn't just a personal emotional thing. It was also a theological thing. They had misunderstood parts of the scripture. They had unrealistic expectations toward Jesus. You see, their view of the Messiah to come was that he would come as the conquering king. And the Bible certainly does predict that and teach that. And they were hoping and expecting that when Messiah would come, that he would deliver them practically and politically. They were under great duress during this time. As the history of the Jewish nation shows that they were always under some type of oppression for the most part. They had their seasons when they weren't, like under King Solomon or under King David. But most of their history is under oppression of some other country, some other people. Sometimes it came as a direct result of their own sin. Other times it was a direct result of sin in the world. But they were always facing what we call today anti-Semitism. There was always somebody hating the Jews and wanting to destroy them. At this point in time, the oppression in their lives was in the Roman government. The Roman government was oppressive. It brought many great benefits to the world at the time, but it did so by enslaving two-thirds of the population. And when we say of slave during that time, it's in its literal sense. Most men and women as slaves were someone's, seen as someone's property. Not at all the heart of God. There were a few, uh, or there were many, you know, th- th- there's debate on how much was which, that were paying off debts. But even in that condition, they were at the mercy of someone else and often mistreated and, and treated in a way that was not glorifying to God. At this time in the first century, the Jews were hoping Messiah would come, but they were hoping Messiah would come as king and usher in the millennial period, which has still not yet begun. They were hoping it would begin then. They wanted to be outside and out from under the oppression of the Romans. So then when Jesus came and he was crucified, they were greatly disappointed. Because not only was their best friend on the cross and all of the emotion with that, but their hopes of the millennial period and the the time that was promised all throughout Isaiah and many other places from the prophets, that wouldn't come either. So as they leave, as they walk away, as they go off and on with their life, they are disappointed on many different levels. Personally, practically, even politically. It's not unlike the culture that we're in today where there is, a, there is a sense that with all the world's woes and all the hope of the nation is just to make sure that we get the right person in office. And if we just get the right person in office, oh, the whole world will turn around. Listen, I'm with you as a citizen of our country that I would prefer a person that would reflect the culture and the Judeo-Christian values of our country. But listen, it doesn't matter who's in office. A man will not save the country. Nor a woman, whoever's running, it doesn't matter. It is not political hope that we have. Only King Jesus can turn a life around, turn a country around, and turn a world around, and he's promised to do just that thing. He's promised that. He's coming again. This is where they're at. It's not a bad desire. 
And it's not a bad desire to see uh, oppression stop. And it's not a bad desire to see government change. And it's not a bad desire to participate. Not at all. We are citizens of our country and must participate in order in honoring the Lord. But listen, like the Jews then and us now, we can't place our hope in man. We just read that in Psalm 146. You can't place your hope in man. You can't place your hope in man. Your hope must be in the settled foundational word of God. Do you know the Bible says that? That God's word is settled in heaven. God's word is settled in heaven. It may not be settled in your heart right now. It may not even feel like it's settled in your heart. But God is teaching us that no matter what we feel, no matter what emotions we are going through, we must trust in the Lord. That's our hope. That's our strength. To hold fast to his word no matter what it looks like and what it feels like. Now, for you Bible students, let me give you some technical things you can write down just to understand where their belief system was before we jump into the text today. Because there was a very specific order of events that they were expecting. And if you want to jot them down, let me give them to you. Number one, in the first century, the Jews were expecting a, great, a time of great turmoil just before the coming of Messiah. The Romans had come and taken over. They were under great a turmoil and oppression from the Romans, and so they saw that as fulfillment. Secondly, they were expecting Elijah to come before Messiah. And it's interesting because John the Baptist, his coming, heightened this feeling. And then when Jesus said that John was a type of Elijah, wow, they were beginning to see things were happening. Thirdly, they expected an alliance of Gentile nations to gather together and come against Israel. Fourthly, they were expecting then Messiah would come, gather all the Jews to Israel, and then finally the kingdom age, the millennial period, would begin. And they believed they were somewhere between two and three, maybe even three and four, and that great times would surely come. But Jesus, God in human flesh, knew that it wouldn't be so. That while they understood the scriptures, they were mistaken, and it led to expectations that were not met and that added to the difficulty that they felt when Jesus died. Jesus was teaching beginning in chapter 14. He's teaching the disciples that no matter what you feel, you're going to have some crazy feelings here in a moment. No matter what you feel, you need to learn how to walk by faith. You need to learn to live on what I've taught you. You need to learn to live on what I've said to you. You need to learn to live that no matter where it se- what it seems like, what it looks like, my words, Jesus is saying to them, are going to get you through. That's why he says in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I know you're going through it. Don't let your heart, you believe in God, believe also in me. Then we come into chapter 15, and Jesus teaching us on abiding in him. And we've learned a lot of practical things about abiding in him, what that means to us now. But listen, for them then, for the hearers, the original hearers of those words, they were more than just learning practical principles on how to live the Christian life. They were life-giving words because when they're about ready, you know, we, we can't even conceive how hard it would have been to experience watching Jesus beaten and tortured and, and hanging on a Roman cross right in front of everybody. To see him taken down from a distance and to feel so bad for abandoning him and watch him be buried and just think, you know what? Life is over. He's telling them, abide in me. Because in the greatest time of turmoil in your life, the only place you belong is in him. 
but not as a factory worker. Remember last time we, we learned? God isn't, he, he's not telling us, like he doesn't look at us and go, okay, here's what you need to do to be a good Christian. Make sure you're doing this and make sure you're doing that and you're not doing enough. And because you're not doing enough, you're not, that, that's not at all the heart of God. Instead, what does Jesus say? I want you to remember the Father. Don't keep this, don't forget this. Jesus says, I want you to remember the Father's a gardener. He's not a factory manager whipping you and making you do things. He's a gardener. And he's taking good care of you. He's weeding out. He's pruning. He's adding. He's watering. You abide in me, Jesus said. I abide in you. And in a very real way, this is what he's saying. You abide in me and I abide in you. You're going to bear much fruit. But I could also paraphrase that. You abide in me and I abide in you. And you're going to get through it. You're going to make it through. That's going to be your source of strength. It's, it's going to be okay. Because you know that they hated you, they hated me first. I know what it feels like to be hated, Jesus says. They're going to come after you? Well, they came after me first. They're going to hate you without a cause? They're going to hate, they hated me without a cause. So stay close to me in tough times. And it's easier to stay close to him in good times, isn't it? It's easier to stay close to him in good times because we can lift our hands and worship and just know things are pretty much the way we like them and pretty much the way we want them and we thank God for them. And I do thank God for good times. Believe me, I, I thank God when things are going well. I thank God when there's no big issue in my life. I thank God for that. But that's not real life, is it? That's not real life. Real life has times of, man, things are going the way we would like them. And then real life has ways of like, what is this? What is this? And I have to say, it's easier to abide at times when things are going well than it is when things aren't going so well. But listen, the reality, though, of your life is that trials and tribulations and difficulties, they do something to you. They change you and me. They make us different. There's going to come a day when you and I are able to even thank God like Paul did for the trial, which is just mind-blowing. Because when you're in the middle of it, you're not thinking God no trial. You're asking God to get it out. You're saying, man, deliver me, Lord. Take this thorn away, Paul said. And the answer was in trials, though, see, because trials change us and difficulties change us and, and, and hardships change us because when Paul was, was crying out for that tent stake to be taken out, that thorn, the answer from Jesus was, number one, I'm not taking it away. What? No, I'm leaving it there. It's going to stay there. It's going to be a work of humility in your life. And I'm not going to answer the prayer that you think I am, Paul. I'm not going to answer it the way you think I am. Because I'm not going to remove that thorn. Instead, what I'm going to do for you is because of that in your life, you're going to experience more of me. <laughs> like, that's the answer to our prayers. Whatever the answer might be in a practical way, the spiritual answer is always this. Oh, you've come to me in prayer. My response to you is you get more of me and our relationship grows, and our love for God grows. I mean, it's, it, it, you look at your life, when things are going well, when things are going well, you're not really praying all that much. I mean, you are, but you're kind of like thanking God. I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so, but when a trial comes, you are passionately praying, and you are begging God to meet you, and you are asking God to forgive you, and you're examining your life, and you're asking the hard questions that you don't usually ask when good times that's all what Jesus is doing here. This is this whole section. Very practical, very powerful, but very personal. Preparing the guys, his buddies, his followers for what's up ahead. And so what does he say with that in mind? Notice verse 1 of chapter 16. 
These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Circle that word if you'd like to write in your Bible. Circle that word. Write next to it the Greek word skandalon. S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N. Skandalon. We get our English word scandal from it. And the idea behind the word is don't be scandalized by what you're going to see in just a few days. Don't, don't be overwhelmed. Don't be shocked of what you're going to do. I'm telling you these things so that when it does, when I'm, what I'm saying comes to pass, I'm telling you these things so you're not scandalized, that you are not, you're, you're not shocked. If you want to write next to it too, it's the same word that that John used that for Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 61, in that section there where Jesus is speaking words of intimacy. He's speaking words of relationship. But they were hard words, remember, because he told us, he told them then and us, he said, in order to have a relationship with you, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And some misunderstood him, thinking that he was literally sticking out, you know, some people think, well, what, did he stick out his arm and everybody took a bite out of it? He wasn't saying that. He was talking intimacy. You need to assimilate me into your life. I have to be everything for you. It's the symbolism we have in communion where where you're reminding yourself, my life is his. Why? Because of his broken body and his shed blood. But he was saying it in the physical and it stumbled people or it scandalized them. They couldn't take it. They couldn't even, even though they, they couldn't take his explanation that his words are spirit and they are life. He wasn't asking them to literally eat his body. He was speaking life to them. This is going to be life. And then the, one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, John chapter 6, verse 66, isn't that interesting. John 6, 6, 6 speaks of a group of his disciples after hearing that and being scandalized. Turn around, leave Jesus, and don't follow him anymore. No doubt that's on the mind of the disciples. They totally know what he's talking about here. This isn't an isolated thing where we're here we are on a Sunday. And I know it's been many, many months since we studied chapter 6. But this is all happening in real time for them. And they totally know what he's talking about that just happened not too long prior. Don't be scandalized. Don't be stumbled. Not only that, verse 2, he says, they'll put you out of the synagogues. This is not a small thing. This isn't like, this isn't, don't, don't interpret this like you'll have to go to another church. That's not what he's saying. To be put out of the synagogue means to lose all of your identity as a man or a woman. To lose your family. To lose everything. To be ostracized. He says, there's coming a time, because of your faith in me, you will lose everything for me. You will lose your identity. You will lose your name. Your parents will no longer claim you. No longer acknowledge you. No longer spend time with you. You will lose your siblings. You will lose your property. You will lose your... You won't be able to worship anymore. You won't be welcome anymore. That's what he's saying. He says, that's going to come. You'll be put out of the synagogues. Not only that, what does he say? He says, yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Well, that didn't take long to happen, did it? We're going to do a little interactive thing, okay? So there was a man by the name of Saul. Okay, I'm going to give that, give that one to you, okay? So there was a man by the name of Saul who was headed to the city of Damascus to kill Christians, to kill moms that follow Jesus, to kill dads, to kill kids. And Paul, who he's later known as Paul, but Saul, he really believed that he was doing God service. 
that this was an act of worship. That didn't take long. Stephen was stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, when it comes, I don't want you to be scandalized. It's going to happen. And these things they'll do to you, verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. It's not that they didn't have a chance to know. God in human flesh, God came and inhabited human flesh. Spent three years teaching them and loving them. Many of them did believe, but most of them, and I have a little note here to remind me, you might want to jot it down in your Bible, they were purposefully ignorant. Purposefully ignorant. They refused to believe, and they refused to enter into relationship with Jesus and the Father. And he says in verse 4, But these things I've told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrows filled your heart, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper, now we've studied this, who is the helper, church? The Holy Spirit. The helper, the comforter, will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Just as a little side note, because you have people come to your door and tell you that the Holy Spirit's like a force or like electricity. Jesus teaches us that the Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity. He's a person right here. I will send him to you. He doesn't say I will send it to you. He says I will send him to you. And the Holy Spirit lives in us now. I don't want you to be stumbled, Jesus says. And what is it Jesus doing but he's preparing for what's up ahead. That's the work of God often in our lives. Anything you're going through right now is preparing you for what's up ahead. You're in a trial right now. God is using that to prepare you for what's up ahead. You're going through it right now and you're right here. Well, God is going to work here. He's going to take you from here to here. And it's all preparation. It's all growth. It's all cutting away of the flesh. It's all bringing humility into your life. It's all reminding you of the glory of God and, and the depravity of man and the sinfulness of man. Not just the sinfulness of man, but our own sinfulness, our own weakness, our own dependency. God, whatever you're in right now is not wasted. He's taking it here and he's bringing you here. Stick with him. Don't turn your back on him. Don't be scandalized. Trust him. Hold fast to his word. That's what he's doing here. He's preparing them. Everything in our life is preparing us for what's up ahead. Ultimately, you know what the real preparation is? He's getting us ready for heaven. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. That's where we're going to enjoy, enjoy our gifts. It's going, to, it, where, it's going to where we're going to enjoy our rewards and we cast them down before the master's feet. It's where we're going to be given our assignments to serve alongside of Jesus. We're all in preparation. The good news is, is that death does not get the final word. Jesus in his resurrection, he gets the final word. And when we die, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. It's all preparation, church. It's all getting us ready. (laughs) Some of you are thinking, well, can't he do it another way? Man, I feel your pain. I wish he could, but he can't. Everything in life is preparing us for what's ahead. A good reminder there as we close. You've been listening to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're in the midst of a study in John's Gospel. We hope you're getting a lot out of it. If you'd like to hear it again, go to AboundingGraceRadio.com. We also offer the program by podcast. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. And another way to listen to Pastor Ed's teachings is through our mobile app. Do a search for Ed Taylor. 
Thank you for your support of Abounding Grace. It does make a difference. Your donation today will help us present God's Word over the radio tomorrow. We're consistently receiving wonderful reports from listeners all over the world of how God is using the Word to help them grow by God's abounding grace. You're helping to make that possible. And when you support this ministry today with a gift of $25 or more, you're invited to request a copy of Pastor Ed's book, Sure and Steady. Now, this was written to encourage those in pastoral ministry. The work of a pastor is not easy, often unpredictable, and full of challenges and discouragements. As you may know, this is Pastor Appreciation Month. So why not order a copy of Sure and Steady and give it to your pastor as a way of showing your appreciation to him? I know they'll be encouraged as they read Sure and Steady. Just call 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-30-GRACE. You can also order it online at calvaryco.store. And if you'd like to just make a donation and aren't interested in the resource, go online to aboundinggraceradio.com. We hope you join us for a service online or in person here at Calvary Church in Aurora. Those service times are Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sundays at 8.45 and 10.45 in the morning. And we offer a midweek service, too, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. We live stream at calvaryco.church. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but do come back next time when we'll resume Pastor Ed Taylor's study of the Gospel of John on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.